here are some steps that you can do to help prevent a wildfire. So this is our readyforwildfire.org website. Right on the home page, we have a section called Prevent Wildfire. From there, you can learn and you can break down exactly the main causes of fires in California. So our One Less Spark, One Less Wildfire looks to help all of us know what steps we have to take to prevent sparking a wildfire. So here are the top five human-related activities that you, the general public, can do to help us prevent a wildfire. Whether it's equipment use, debris burning, vehicles, campfire, or target shooting, these are some of the more common causes of wildfires. So let's break that down. First, equipment use. This can be any type of powered equipment. Typically what we'll see are during the summer days, people will take a, a riding lawnmower like this. These are meant for manicured green lawns, not for dry fields. The metal blade from this lawnmower on a rock sparks and will create a wildfire. So you wanna make sure you're using the right tool at the right time for the right job. You can learn all that by just going to this webpage and we have a lot of additional information on equipment use. Here's a video, a whole uh, uh, infographic that breaks down the time. Morning is probably the best time uh, in to do any mowing that you want to do. In fact, before 10 a.m., uh, before the humidity uh, drops and the temperatures go up. We talk about spark arresters. Did you know your chainsaw needs to have a spark arrestor to make sure that it doesn't spark a fire? Some additional information all here uh, on this infographic. So again, that is equipment use. So kind of going back though to this homepage, debris burning. Of course, in the middle of summer here, uh, burning vegetation like branches and leaves uh, are banned. So you cannot do that this time of year. But all too often, people use burning to get rid of their leaves and vegetation. There are alternatives in the summer months to be able to get rid of any vegetation. Green waste is a great uh, alternative. Uh, third, vehicle use. Your vehicle can actually spark a wildfire. So some of the more common, uh, common uh, reasons that a vehicle sparks a wildfire here is another infographic you can learn. Securing your chains. If you're gonna tow a trailer or a boat uh, this three-day weekend, make sure that the trailer chain is secure. Don't have any dragging parts from your vehicle. So making sure that it's properly maintained uh, by checking the tire pressure. That is an easy one. Uh, properly maintaining your brakes, that too, if they're not maintained, can cause a spark. So your vehicle use is an important one come this uh, three-day weekend. Coming back here, we'll uh, capture uh, campfire safety. If you're going out camping, some areas actually restrict campfires altogether this time of year. Uh, go to this part of the website. You can actually watch this video, and there's a link to get a campfire permit. You are required to have a permit, uh, depending on where you're going. But you also need to check before you go, because in many areas, because of the fire danger, campfires are also uh, banned right now. So make sure that if you are going to go camping, if you are going to have a campfire, there are some simple rules. Here's another infographic on those safety rules, including how you build your campfire, clearing the vegetation at least five feet from each edge. You want to scrape away any grass, uh, any vegetation. Um, and here are some additional steps, including having water uh, with you, making sure that it's completely extinguished. And this is, a, this is a common one. People don't completely extinguish their campfire. You want to use the drown, stir, feel method. Drown it in water, stir it around so that any of those hot coals underneath get that water as well. And then you want to feel. Use the back of your hand, just put it just 
right over, uh, right over the ash. If it's still hot, do it again. Add some more water. So again, campfire safety tips are an important one this uh, Memorial Day weekend. And then lastly, if you're a target shooter, if you're going out into the wildland areas, here are some steps that if you are going to go target shooting, uh, you want to make sure you're using safe targets. The type of bullet you use uh, is important. Uh, exploding targets are highly destructive and highly dangerous and uh, most likely are illegal in your area. So again, here's some good information about uh, target shooting. Uh, another uh, infographic available for you. Again, we're just trying to break down the, uh, you know, each different step on, on doing all of these uh, different activities before you go. So let's go over them again. Equipment use, debris burning, vehicle use, campfires and target shooting. All of these uh, are items that you can do to help prevent a fire because really one less spark this Memorial Day weekend really does mean one less wildfire. Now, sisters and brothers, we know we got over by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of sheroes and heroes, some whose names we know and some whose names we do not know. But I want to tell you something. We have been here before. Now, the only difference is we got some company, Rev. We got our gay lesbian sisters and brothers with us this time. We got our Hispanics. Asian Native American sisters and brothers with us this time. I think Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King said we may not have gotten here on the same ship, but we are in the same boat right now. In Father Teresa's wine cellar, we believe all oppression is intersectional. And this means our analysis of current events frequently includes discussion of difficult and explicit content. Any combination of the following topics could be included in our show. Murder, rape, war, climate change, racism, sexism, violence, sexual violence, homophobic violence, heterocentrism, discrimination and abuse against individuals of nonconformist sexuality, domestic violence, child abuse, child rape, child neglect, elderly abuse, verbal abuse, police brutality, microaggressions, ableism, cyberbullying, genital mutilation, ideological extremism, and people just being total fucking assholes. Hey, 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 there you have it. My microphone is a little tilted, somewhat awkward. There we are, matey. Matey? Are you a pirate? There are some people that are getting tired of hearing that one. That me saying matey? And they, yes. We are repetitive. Yes. Six years of it were fun. No, we're not. Phoenix Cleveland's looking pale. You didn't uh, get no sun this year? No, I did not get any sun this year. Like skin nigga didn't get no extra melanin shot? No, I did not get my melanin shot this year. All right, and check the old decibels, make sure I'm recording well, as expected I am, because I did sound check. I had two hours to do sound check before <laughs> going on, and also did a, um, a swap cast. Check out that latest swap cast. It's literally right the fuck before this episode. 
recorded on the same gosh damn Sunday, September 2nd, 2020. We have a day between us and moving. Yes. All right. Out to Michigan. Let's see what the hell's happening out there. I'm going to find out exactly what they did to make Eminem. What happened? Okay, to be fair, we're not moving there. We're moving to a different part of Michigan. The whole other damn side. Yes. Yeah, like that other part. That's like four hours away and shit. Yeah. Yeah, like, and that's on the freeway with people that go 75 an hour. <sighs> yeah. All right, folks on the Facebook Live, I have the cat videos up. All right, just in case you like to have a visual while you hear this. And folks on the podcast audio, you know what you subscribe for. And thank you to the folks that hit up the Patreon. One of the people uh, that hit up the PayPal and the Patreon, they were like, uh, they said, I've been a moocher all this time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, you know what? It, it was socialized for you. The next person paid it forward for you, and then you kicked it forward for the next person. Yes. Right? Pays the web hosting. Gets me some chicken wings. Right? <laughs> Who so, doesn't like chicken wings? Yeah, the, uh, the ones from the Jewel Osco that are already cooked. But they're in the cold case, so I can take them home and microwave them, and I don't have to interact with anyone. Yes. That's right. Socially distanced chicken wings. <laughs> Righto. <laughs> All right. So the book is indeed uh, Thomas Frank. Um, the People Know a Brief History of Anti-Populism. This is our fourth installment of the book club of For Wine Cellar Media. We are the punk-ass book jockeys, and we kick it in the live as Jan Loco may have inadvertently said, I don't know if that was a typo, but they called the library the Libe. Oh, that's fun. So I mean, so that's where the punk ass book jockeys hang out. That seems logical. All right. Obviously, the wine cellarinos are in the wine cellar. The punk ass book jockeys are in the Libe. And um, and Talk Fury is on pause. It's coming back, but I can't handle another show right now and moving, mostly mentally. My mind is gone trying to change banks and shit, which means we're going to have to take another trip out here to Illinois. Probably. Yeah. Like we're actually going to have to get on a train and come back to Illinois to handle banking business. Like before the end of this year, this shit is so not over and it's so fucking ass crack. Pretty Uh, much. Yeah. Yeah. 150,000%. All right. So we're going to pick up right the holy fuck damn where we left off with the, uh, the people know. And I'm hoping the um, the next book, Phoenix Cleeter said put it up for a vote. And um, I definitely, uh, one of the things that I'll pick will definitely be, uh, I don't know the name of it, I'll have to look it up, but it's where Naomi Klein did a deep dive on the um, the Koch brothers. Okay. Yeah, I want to I wanna do that. Naomi, Naomi Klein's deep dive on the Koch brothers. Um, I've heard a couple interviews, but I've never um, read uh, Wrapped in the Flag by Claire Connor. I would I would like to funk with that. So uh yeah, we'll put it up to a vote on the next book of the book club. All right, and with all that said, a whole bunch of extra ass words you don't want to fucking hear. Back to the book club, picking up smooth the fuck where we left off with Thomas Frank. There is a call-in number if you're tuned in right now like uh when I think I have a cool moment to pause it. I'll pause it and we'll riff a little bit and jump back to it. That call-in number is 347-857-3937. You're going to hear a British accent telling you that you can press 1 to join, and when you do that, I'll get a notification on my screen 
that says this person wants to get in and then I'll shout your area code and say your microphone is hot. And that be that, this be this, listen now, audible.com. Very convenient for a, uh, a punk-ass book jockey. Voters are very ignorant and always have been, Damn. write the political scientists Jonathan Rausch and Benjamin Wittes. That's a hard place to start. My microphone should have been turned off before that. Y'all shouldn't have heard me say damn. But yeah, when the microphones are off, I am reacting to the shit being said. All right. In a 2017 paper called More Professionalism, Less Populism. Therefore, the two argue, the populist goal of increasing public participation is inherently wrong-headed. Experts are the ones we should be empowering. Like it or not, the two experts write, most of what government does simply must be decided by specialists and professionals. Quoting one of their professional peers, they conclude that we must have a new professional class to set the agenda. This is the recurring nightmare we will encounter throughout this book, the horror of populist anti-intellectualism. In its hyper-democratic folly, experts agree, populism believes that one person's ideas are just as good as another's, and hence it refuses to recognize learning or accomplishment. As a British politician put it just before the Brexit vote, people in this country have had enough of experts. Populism is the mob running wild in the streets of Washington, bellowing for beer and cheap gasoline. Meritocracy, meanwhile, is populism's diametric opposite, the mind that must rule the corpulent political body of America. Meritocracy is ruled by well-graduated people to who have dutifully climbed every ladder, rung every bell, and been rewarded for their excellence with their present high stations. Yes, meritocracy is an elitist system, but the only alternative to it is to place the fragile bureaucracy of, say, the State Department in the hands of a blundering dunce who can't find Pakistan on a map. This harkens back to one of the essential philosophical problems of democracy, that the people will always be too ignorant to rule themselves. It's a question that vexed Jefferson and Madison, and now it vexes us under the name of populism. But does this archetypal dilemma really describe the populist ideal? Was 1890s populism a celebration of ignorance or a species of human stupidity? No. The real problem with populism, with all genuine populisms over the years, was the opposite. That ordinary people had come to understand their interests all too well and were now acting upon that knowledge. Populism was a movement of books and newspapers, of reformers who believed in what the historian Postel calls progress through education, with the earnest faith of the 19th century uplifter. Think of those vast encampments of rural families listening to lecturers from the Farmers Alliance, or of the lending libraries the Alliance set up all over the place or of the universities that leading populists helped to establish. There were populist newspapers, hundreds of them, started in order to contest the mainstream media of the day 
and to spread the gospel of reform. In their pages, the reader would find cheap left-wing books for sale. The editor of the famous Appeal to Reason newspaper, for example, dispensed political tracts under the headline, Books Laboring People Should Read. To remain ignorant is to remain a slave. But neither did populism call for rule by experts. Populism was about mass enlightenment, not the empowerment of a clique of foundation favorites or Ivy League grads. On the money question, Charles Postel tells us, the Pops thought it could and must be understood by the people whose business interests and livelihoods were affected by it. Experts were regarded as helpful guides to the issue. But the populists also understood that in a democracy, ordinary working-class people were the ones who had to make the decisions. And so they educated themselves and prepared to, quote, wrest the levers of monetary power from the corporate elite, unquote. In short, populists both loved knowledge and rejected professional elites. The reason was because the economic establishment of that age of crisis was overwhelmingly concerned with serving business, not the people. The populists mistrusted professional elites, in other words, because from their perspective, those elites had failed. A good illustration of what I am describing can be found in the 1895 pamphlet, What is Populism? In which the author recounts all the different measures urged by the financial doctors upon the plain people as cures for their distress. Farmers and the government, we are told, followed the advice of these physicians and, quote, our illness continued and our suffering increased. In response, professional economists prescribed different, even sharper rounds of austerity, and still the economic disaster of the 1890s mounted. Let me tell you a secret, the populist author confides. The people have lost confidence in the professional skill of these physicians. They are reading up their own case, they reason that a wrong financial policy must be the cause of financial distress, that a reversal of that wrong financial policy is the only rational and certain remedy. Does losing faith in professional economics mean that the people rejected learning across the board? Does it mean they celebrated ignorance? No. The author of What is Populism? was in fact a professor of mathematics at Willamette University in Oregon. What he was criticizing was what we might call expert failure. The problem was not knowledge, it was orthodoxy. Financial doctors who trusted blindly in the gold standard and in one another. Proving that the experts had failed was a favorite set piece among reformers of the period. They loved to imagine leading financiers and academics, the stuffed shirt consensus crowd of their day, laid low by the steel trap reasoning of some ordinary person. The outstanding example of this device is Coin's Financial School, William Harvey's bestseller of 1894, in which bankers, economists, and newspapermen are humiliated by the overwhelming logic of a small boy who somehow happens to be an expert on free silver. In the course of his story, 
Harvey mocks the mental processes of his exalted antagonists, depicting the minds of businessmen as tools of leading financiers. On all such questions as a national finance policy, their thinkers run automatically, repeating whatever they've heard some banker say. And yet, as with other favorite populist documents, Coyne's financial school was packed with tables and numbers. Its point was not to discredit learning, but to challenge conventional wisdom, to encourage people to figure out their predicament for themselves. Mass enlightenment largely disappeared from the reform tradition in the decades after populism was defeated. Instead of self-education and self-mobilization, Postel reminds us, the initiative passed to expert women and men with professional training and administrative posts. And so it is today. Liberalism as we know it now is a movement led by prosperous, highly educated professionals who see government by prosperous, highly educated professionals as the highest goal of protest and political action. Where once it was democratic, liberalism is today a politics of an elite. What makes this particularly poignant is that we are living through a period of elite failure every bit as spectacular as that of the 1890s. I refer not merely to the opioid crisis, the bank bailouts, and the failure to prosecute any bankers after their last fraud frenzy, but also to disastrous trade agreements, stupid wars, deindustrialization, basically to the whole grand policy vision of the last few decades, as it has been imagined by a tiny clique of norm-worshipping DC professionals and experts. In this moment of maximum populist possibility, our commentariat proceeds as though the true populist alternative is simply invisible or impossible. You can either have meritocracy or you can have Trumpism. Those are the choices, the Pundit Bureau proclaims. You must either be ruled by gracious, enlightened experts or by racist, authoritarian dunces. Between them, there is no middle ground and no possible alternative. Chapter 2 Because Right is Right and God is God Go flying into chapter two because right is right and God is God, and back to that that gold standard shit. Yes. I tried to ask you off camera, like, what, what the fuck is he? He's talking about <laughs> gold again. God damn it! Yeah. Well, remember earlier in the text he mentioned that um, the gold standard was basically <clears throat> fucking with poor people because you had to have a certain amount of gold, and that uh, dictated how many like physical like paper dollars you could. Um, create and so essentially if you already had all the paper dollars you were good but people who were in debt it basically were losing to inflation every year and so like if you were in debt it was harder and harder to pay off your um, debts and the, this was uh, specifically about poor farmers he was mentioning I think in Kansas earlier were the people who were getting fucked over by this system okay that's like when they give an 18 year old a debit card and they have a job <laughs> but they they're 18 and their their parents aren't really raising them because their parents were bogged down by capitalism. Right. Or they don't have parents at all. They may have aged out of the foster care system and then found their sister in Florida and moved there. I don't know who did that. Who did that? And um, and they may have got a bank account with Bank of America, wise choice, and had an overdraft on Monday. 
and until you get your check on Friday, yep. they charge you $30 per day for having no dollars per day. Yep. So that way, and then you've signed up for direct deposit because you thought that's what adults do. So instead of taking your paper check and taking it to like a, a check cashing place and getting your whole check to handle your business, your check gets siphoned off to that fucking, um, yes, that overdraft. Yep. And so that, that, that $30 a day, that's like some bullshit inflation they made just to hold you on a debt harder. Pretty much. Similar? Uh, I don't know. Somewhat. So, I mean, the concept of fucking over poor people is similar. Yeah. Although the, um, the Jackson Williamson, who went through this in Florida when Jackson he was 20 Williamson. years old, uh-huh. he didn't have any gold. Mm-hmm. If he had gold, would that have helped? Uh, no, because he was already working class, so he wouldn't have had gold. He would have had dollars. No, he didn't have and those the either. Of, the amount of dollars that is worth the amount of gold is uh, dependent on by the people who have the gold. Oh, yeah. so the rich make the rules. Correct. Ironically, about the money with which is what makes them rich. Yes. It's a good system. It's a great system. <laughs> this is working out. Um, although I have to say, I'm glad that he brought it to more modern times, because as he was talking, I was wondering if he was going to bring up... Um, I kept actually waiting for him to say pundits. He didn't actually say pundits, but um, when he's talking about like the professionals or the experts who are you know, helping make the rules that, and how pundits are sort of the gatekeepers to say that, oh, no, this is what the people should have, and we know because we have the degrees. Um, you know, We have the education. We know what's best, but... You know, when it comes down to class issues or real life issues, the difference between the people who have the degrees who are creating theories is that they don't have to live with the results of them. Mm. Unlike actual poor people who are like, if this doesn't work, we're fucked type of situation. Mm. And so that's uh, one of the big things is why there's always such a chasm between like the professionals who are like, this seems good on paper versus the people who are like, if this doesn't work in practice, we're going to die. And so, you know. There's, like, always that uh, sort of discrepancy. But I'm glad he brought it into modern times and pointed out how elected officials trust businessmen who donate to their campaigns, right? And then they support, they write up bad policy because they're, uh, you know, someone with an MBA from Harvard told them this was a good idea. So they write the policy and then it's not a good idea. But none of them actually have to live with the consequences of uh, the bad policies and the bad theories because they're the people in power. And then if they don't have any consequences, they could actually say, this is good. I'm still rich. Yeah, well, I mean, because look at what happened with COVID. A bunch of people um, were out of work and Wall Street uh, tycoons made money. Like, you know, that's kind of how the system works. Not everybody makes money. And it was also interesting that he kept noting how that populism is not about anti-education. And I think that's a very uh, relevant argument or point to be made right now especially with Trump in office, because they keep trying to tie populism to fascism and Trumpism. And one of the things they always say is like, oh, it's just like, you know, a bunch of like inbred racist rednecks who are stupid and don't know things who support Trumpism and by default support populism. And it's like, actually, no, a lot of populists do support education. We just don't support people who don't have to live with the consequences of their shitty theories being the ones who get to make all the theories. Oh, shit. And I shit you not. Earlier today, like in show prep, while I was reading 20 articles about Kamala Harris, just to, you know, get my game up. And um, and I was also listening to some podcasts and I was letting them autoplay, just letting them rock. And it got to the professional left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. 
and they were talking about Trump's bad, horrible, terrible populism today in 2020, mm-hmm. right? And they were like, and blue, and blue, not blue gal, drift glass started, you know, getting you where he raises his voice and he's being an angry Democrat now, angry liberal with a very, very deep voice. So also an angry man. So take serious. And he's like, Trump is a Republican through and through. He's a Republican, always been a Republican. Now, I want to know if, the, again, no, they, they wouldn't go back and delete it or modify it because they don't function on memory. People who are to the right of you don't remember shit that you might critique them for. Yeah. 2017, Driftglass said out of his Irish face that um i don't know why i added the irish part it's there though (laughs) out of his face that um that trump won because he ran as a democrat huh he said that verbatim well because that that sentence has been in my head since he said it like what the fuck are you talking about he ran on populism hmm really like hillary did when she said nothing's gonna change and Medicare for all is never going to happen. And maybe we should have Pokemon go to the polls. Yeah, but keep in mind. Yeah, I know she did all those things. But keep in mind what are Democrats portrayed as. They're, Demo- they're portrayed as the party of the working class, right? Mm. And they're like, oh, we care about small businesses. We want to fix the middle class. We, you know, blah, blah. And of course, they never do these things in practice, right? But if you go to anybody and say, why should I vote blue no matter who? They'll be like... Well, Democrats have supported these things since FDR, and then they'll go back to, like, FDR's populist policies, and it's like... Can you support it with your vote? No. (laughs) No. I mean, they're not actually going to try to implement these things, but that has been a Democrat talking point for a long time, is that we're better than Republicans because we care about people, you know? And so... um, That's just sort of always been a thing, and so Trump did run on populism, but instead of uh, separating the populism from... The racism, uh, you know, like liberal media, which I now sound like a fucking conservative, but like liberal media intentionally conflated those things. So that was how you got the, um, what the fuck were they calling the Trump supporters? Economically anxious. Oh, uh, they were saying economic anxiety. Yes. Yeah. So, and all those things. And it's like, yeah, the people are those things. They're also racist. Right. Yeah. And so like the difference between like left populism and right populism, that aspect is like Trump supporters are okay with hurting other people as long as they get what they feel entitled to left populism that wants to make you know everything better for everybody but you know like liberals democrats are intentionally conflating um this like economic anxiety shit with populism to be like see they're just racist and they're fascist and it's like that's not there's two different things happening there yeah (laughs) and uh and i remember like uh going through 2014 you know, before Trumple Stilskin became the fucking yellow-headed boogeyman with a big ass on the tennis court. That Megan Stallion I... should put him in a video. Oh, no, no, Fuck no. Fuck yeah. No. Wet-ass tennis shorts. No, ew. <laughs> fucking, um, the, uh, I remember seeing those articles and shit and posts and links and whatnot about middle-aged white folks committing suicide because of economic problems. Yeah. Like, this was before the the big escalator ride of the 2015, and before that sneaky, sneaky Jew from Brooklyn Mm -hmm. came in and ruined Hillary's life. He did ruin Hillary's life. She is a victim of big Jew. 
But I mean, also keep in mind how anti-populism liberal media is. There's those stories about people committing suicide because they can't pay their medical bills. But at the same time, anytime there's the fucking like, um, you know, co-workers got together and crowdfunded a car for this 80-year-old man who walks to work five miles every day. And that's supposed to be like heartwarming shit. Like, you know. I remember one similar, but it was, it was, it was like a... Damn, you know, I can't even put an age to it, but it was an aging black man. Yeah. And I think it was in Michigan. Ironically, like the car capital because of Detroit. Yeah. And uh, brother was walking. And um, yeah, and, and folks hooked him up with a rider. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of those stories, though, were like a fucking kid makes lemonade stand to pay off lunch debts of other students. And it's like, why the fuck do kids have lunch debts? But then also the the follow-up to that, school rejects the money. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But that's that shit. But they'll tell you that people don't want populism and it's fascism. And it's like, no, we don't want kids to go hungry. And we don't want 80-year-old people to have to walk to work, assuming they want to work and not they have to work. Yeah, and that's like, and people like... And if you're like our age, you know, we're in our late 30s, you know, uh, Phoenix Khalid is literally 30 the fuck nine, you know, and like we came up like what could you always be guaranteed to see new rapper next year? Where's his crew? Right. And then where's his record label where he signs on more people from his hometown? And then what does he say in the interview? I just want to give my folks some opportunities. Um, I used to watch the program. uh, um it wasn't BET Tonight. No, that was uh, Tavis Smiley. It was live from LA. And I think it was hosted by that nigga, John Sally. And I forget who the co-host was. And um, and they had Mac 10, the rapper uh, uh, Queen Street Inglewood Blood on there. And they were like, you have any uh, a message for the, for the governor out there? Uh, the new governor? And he was like, give my people some jobs, man. I used to have this on a VHS tape before my shit got jacked. And uh, he's like, give my people some jobs. Some of my folks got felonies. Like, populism is always at work because the people want to help the people. You got rappers literally deliberately getting rich just to try to help the hood. Right? And that's why on Coolio's album, um, It Takes a Thief, what was the song? Bring back something for the hood, motherfucker. Bring back something for the hood was the name of the record. And then even on his uh, record, It Takes a Thief, um, in the last verse where he talks about Jack and a big time drug dealer that's out of town, he said, um, headed back to the truck with a sack full of good, threw it in the back, took it back to the hood. You know, it always. All right. Uh, no one would, let me take a one more look at the blog talk. Okay. No one on the line, no comments on the face booze. So back to Thomas Frank. And remember that is Thomas Frank's, uh, voice reading, uh, the book, doing the audio book because, um, lefties can't afford voiceover artists we function on a low budget on the left buddy i'm pretty sure he's probably okay what thomas frank thomas frank's probably chilling i don't know the nigga well enough or maybe he just likes to he'd rather spit his own shit maybe probably phoenix is not sure she is pre ocu all right (laughs) one thing we know for sure about the democracy scare the global revulsion against populism is that it is a contemporary mode of thinking, as up-to-date as this morning's Twitter feed. How can it be otherwise? The horrors of populism only really registered in the pundit consciousness after the disastrous elections of 2016 delivered Brexit. Pundits. (laughs) Which was at the beginning of the whole riffing part. (laughs) 
thunders. Let me, I'll, I'll throw it back 30 seconds. All right, so it, it was coming, just in chapter two. Because right is right and God is God. One thing we know for sure about the democracy scare, the global revulsion against populism, is that it is a contemporary mode of thinking, as up-to-date as this morning's Twitter feed. How can it be otherwise? The horrors of populism only really registered in the pundit consciousness after the disastrous elections of 2016 delivered Brexit to the UK and Trump to the White House. The argument of this book, however, is that anti-populism is in fact an old and surprisingly persistent habit of mind. No matter the guise or caste in which populism appears, each new generation of outraged critics thinks to describe it using the same stereotypes and the same images, as though they were reading from some long-lost script, lightly modified for current conditions. We catch our first glimpse of the durable script to which the American elite persistently reverts when we look at the effort by elites of the 1890s, to defeat the reform movement of the period. Today we absorb our anti-populism from TV and social media, but the genre itself is a living fossil, a 19th century smear campaign that is somehow still going. Let us set the stage. In the later decades of that century, the wealthy and the well-educated and the high-born, and they were all pretty much one group back then, saw their way of life come under threat by rising working-class movements, by strikes and boycotts, by anarchists and trade unionists. The fear of class war haunted the journalism and literature of the period. In the minds of the elite, it was an ever-present peril. The apocalypse seemed more imminent than ever as the U.S. economy sank into depression in the 1890s as industrial conflict subsumed Chicago, and as the burgeoning populist movement made its demands for currency reform and railroad nationalization. The country's respectables had laughed at populism earlier in the decade, regarding it as a sideshow. Forced eventually to take it seriously, they came to see it instead as a sort of social earthquake, a peasant uprising right out of the French Revolution. The present assault on capital is but the beginning, moaned Supreme Court Justice Stephen J. Field in 1895 as he struck down an early income tax law which had been pushed through Congress by populists and reform-minded Democrats. It will be but the stepping stone to others, larger and more sweeping, till our political contests will become a war of the poor against the rich, a war constantly growing, in intensity and bitterness. Field had the aggressor and the victim mixed up, but the class war was most definitely on. At the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1896, working class unrest appeared to triumph with the surprise nomination of a former young congressman from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan, who had won the honor on the strength of his oratory against the gold standard. To the establishment, there could be no doubt about what Bryan signified. 
One of the nation's main political parties had been captured by radicalism, and the shock was as great as that of a stock market crash. In the years before 1896, the differences between Democrats and Republicans on economic questions had been small. The two parties orbited each other in a tight system of limited government, gold-backed money, and friendliness toward big business. Bryan's nomination was the break that marked the system's collapse. The candidate himself was refreshingly direct about this. We are fighting in the defense of our homes, our families, and posterity, he said in his sensational speech to the Chicago Convention. We have petitioned, and our petitions have been scorned. We have entreated, and our entreaties have been disregarded. We have begged, and they have mocked when our calamity came. We beg no longer. We entreat no more. We petition no more. We defy them. The Nebraskan then proceeded to draw the distinction between the old philosophy and the new. There are those who believe that if you will only legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous, their prosperity will leak through on those below. But he proposed an alternative. If you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up through every class which rests upon them. Bryan's chances appeared excellent in that summer of 1896 as he set off on a whistle-stop tour of America. The youngest major party presidential candidate ever, Bryan seemed at first to be a man of destiny. His life story paralleled Lincoln's, his personal morality was without blemish, his oratorical ability was astonishing. To many ordinary people in the West and the South, he was clearly the man of the hour the answer to what ailed the depressed country. They became intoxicated with the pious Nebraska teetotaler. But thanks to his attacks on gold and the wealthy, Bryan had virtually no funding and could afford none of the usual campaign accoutrements. For much of that year, the campaign consisted almost entirely of the Democratic presidential candidate riding around the country in a day coach, often carrying his own suitcases. Hard times was the inescapable campaign issue of 1896, but the way the candidates addressed it was via the proxy issue of the currency. Democrats and populists blamed the country's deflationary gold standard for the unhappy fate of its farmers. William McKinley and the Republicans, meanwhile, saw gold as the rightful ingredient of sound money, or an honest dollar. It was the metal of integrity. Our concern in this chapter is with the latter group, the people who spoke for the economic consensus of the day. These men believed the gold standard to be the central pillar of civilization itself, and regarded the threat to dismantle it as a deadly peril. They may have been wrong on this issue and on many of the others as well, but nevertheless, they prevailed. They contrived to crush Brian's challenge and, in so doing, to build a lasting stereotype of reform as folly. The word with which they expressed that stereotype? Populism. Let us open a copy of Judge magazine for August 8th, 1896 to get a glimpse of how respectable Americans 
regarded the populist threat. Judge was one of the premier humor magazines of the era, with several large, beautifully drawn political cartoons in each issue. The rest of its pages typically featured grotesque caricatures of blacks, Irish, Jews, immigrants, and farmers. Between the jokes at the expense of these subordinate people, you could also catch glimpses of the demographic for whose amusement the chuckles were collected. Refined, upper-class whites, people of manners and education and bank accounts, saying witty things about the burden of good taste. For them, the magazine ran ads promoting Veuve Clicquot champagne and Golden Scepter pipe tobacco. For them, there was prudential life insurance and high white collars. With this particular 1896 issue of Judge, however, something has happened. The usual tone of genial amusement has given way to panic. At the magazine's center is a fold-out illustration of stark American disaster brought on by a gigantic figure labeled populism. This colossus is rustic and tattered, but we are not meant to laugh at him. He glares with predatory eyes. He is armed with a brace of pistols and knives. He wears a French Revolution liberty cap marked anarchy. He wields the torch of ruin, and he towers terrifyingly over his fellow Americans. Before this monster flee the sort of tidy white people who made up Judge Magazine's demographic. Banker, capitalist, honest citizen, respectable Democrat. One of them cowers on the ground beneath populism's onslaught. Another clutches his head in disbelief. Has it come to this? Blubbers the caption. This was the Democracy Scare, 1896 version. Our system was coming unraveled with society's worst elements lining up against its best. Similarly frightful images appeared that year wherever people were dignified and accomplished together, always annotated with hysteria and hyperbole. Populism didn't merely threaten norms. It was bringing the country face to face with anarchy and repudiation. On July 10th, the New York Sun declared that the Democratic Party had been given over to, quote, Jefferson's diametric opposite, the socialist or communist, or, as he is now known here, the populist. A few columns over from this pronouncement, the reader was invited to savor this bit of doggerel, supposedly the chant of the radicalized Democratic Party. Pile the load on plutocrats' backs, sock it to them with the income tax, of gold bug law we make a sport when the time comes we'll pack the court on with the program without a hitch skin the east and skin the rich lift the heart and lift the fist swear to be an anarchist our creed is ruin our flag is red on brother anarchists and raise ned this Swing it back, bring it back just like this. I do kind of want to isolate that audio and label it Thomas Frank rapping. And uh, <clears throat> microphone's back on, as it were. And with what he just said there um, about uh, the uh, that 
comedy magazine, right? So it's an inter- a co- magazine, newspaper, whatever they called it, you know, a goddamn century and, and, and change ago. Yeah. That it, it basically, it did entertainment, but if it waded into politics, it was for the rich. Yes. Not for you damn poors. And it said, he said he had a grotesque racist images of uh, black folks and, and of Bernie. Yes. Maybe actually Bernie himself. Mm-hmm. Also and, farmers, so rural people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Damn piece of shit rural fucking workers. Yes. Kind of like when Jon Stewart just, uh, um, when, uh, remember uh, the black Santa Claus thing and Megyn Kelly bugging out oh, about that? yeah, yeah. And she said this segment's for the kids that Santa is white and it's not going to change. And Jon Stewart was like, what backwards kids from um, from West Virginia are tuning into Megyn Kelly at nine o'clock at night? Yeah, and because John Stewart is one of those fucking liberal elite ass clowns, <clears throat> even though his Twitter war with Donald Trump, which was very one sided, was amusing. Yeah, you know, back in like uh, 2013 or so. But um, like it would look bad if someone were to draw those pictures today, especially if you're a black person and you draw those pictures about another black person. But you can do it rhetorically. I mean, white people still do those things now in political cartoons. Hell, black people do those things. Remember, there's the one political cartoon guy who, um, like, makes Michelle Obama always look transphobic when she was first lady. Okay, and, um, well, even, um, in all the way from Australia, the one they did on Serena Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the the one who did the Michelle Obama pictures is the same one who did, uh, Obama, uh, Barack looking like a monkey. But then also, these are... Republicans, though. Yeah. Like, they're the party of the Klan, sh- straight up. Well, and I guess, well, also, the Democrats are the party of Richard Spencer right now. Yeah. And, uh, but fucking... But if you are a Democrat yourself... Yeah. You can't just do that. But what you can do is be a black, popular sports writer and call yourself the Black Cager and make a piece about Kamala Harris and politically disabled black men... Okay. Uh, share a little bit with this from you because what Thomas Frank was just talking about there, this was one of the um, 20 pieces that I read doing show prep just to get my head in the game, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I just remembered this one because it was like, man, this nigga is going for it. <clears throat> so let's really go straight out of this article now. And this is, um, this nigga's name is not a name I'm very familiar with. Um, Del Greco K. Wilson. Literally, his name is D-E-L-G-R-E-C-O K. Wilson. Mm. All right, and he jumps in, and this is from August August 13th, 2020, relatively new, and he said, um, I noticed a very real and sad pattern yesterday. Joe Biden's selection of Senator Kamala, um, oh, damn, what's her, uh, Remember her middle name? No. Because I want to make sure I start saying that out loud now. All right, we'll find it, though. Debbie. Kamala Debbie Harris. All right, just because she's so black that... All right. Uh, Kamala Debbie Harris, uh, as his running mate on the Democratic ticket, has triggered severe anxiety and uncontrollable thoughts among many black men. Again, he's not drawing a picture of a black man as a monkey. But he is writing some interesting words here, all right? He said triggered, severe... Remember, this is a liberal, too. So they're using the word triggered 
kind of assholey here, which we typically do to people to the right of us. But all right. So he's tricked. She's triggered severe anxiety and uncontrollable thoughts among many black men. For these men, the rise of a highly qualified, uniquely experienced, and politically ambitious, aka paper bag test, from the how from Howard University is a traumatic event. Alright, so already he's framing it that black men don't like Kamala Harris because we're triggered, we're anxious. We're having uncontrollable thoughts and because she's highly qualified and uniquely experienced and an AKA and that's just killing us. So he continues though, as evidenced by the relentless onslaught of attacks, relentless onslaught of attacks leveled against the sister. He's calling her a sister. Remember her name is Kamala Devi, but she's a sister. All right, levied against the sister, the brothers are experiencing difficulty adjusting and coping with her being placed on the Democratic ticket. And he continues, as a result, these brothers will be of no use in the struggle to remove the candidate endorsed by the alt-right neo-Nazis. Keep in mind, Richard Spencer just endorsed Joe Biden, right? But uh, but endorsed by the alt-right neo-Nazis and the KKK from the office of president of the United States. So we are of no use, which also, so we just function in a utilitarian fashion to these people. Like we're merely, I think they call it a means to an end. Is that what the educated folks say? Yeah. All right. We're, we're merely a means to an end. We're not human beings. We're anxious and we just hate her because she's, uniquely uh, experienced um, and they continue the hope is that with time and and good self care these brothers will get better so I just need self care and then I'll, I'll be down with uh, Kamala Devi which is also incredibly classist because poor people don't have the time or ability to self care not really let's see well he says we'll get better However, the competence, self-assurance, and searing intellect Senator Kamala Devi will display over the next three months will likely make the symptoms worse. What words did he use? Searing intellect and competence and self-assurance. This is just going to make it worse. He sounds so pompous with his writing style. (laughs) Maybe. Um... He continues, should the Biden and Kamala Devi ticket emerge victorious, the anxiety and uncontrollable thoughts could last for months or even years. The reality of a President Biden and Vice President Kamala Devi will interfere with the day-to-day political functioning of these black men. And then what does he do? He literally puts up two pictures of a couple of coons for Trump. You know, just black men that put on a Trump shirt and get paid for the grift. Mm-hmm. Which I wouldn't be surprised that a poor person would do. I mean, they do it for the Democrats, but it's okay. Like, remember Mothers of the Movement? Yeah. Fucking Christ. Um, in a very real sense, these black men are politically disabled 
their disability is characterized by below average political intelligence or political ability and a lack of skills necessary for day-to-day -day political engagement. Do you, f now, if anyone who's heard this podcast before, do you find me, I'm a black man that doesn't support Kamala Devi and will not be voting on the presidential ticket this year for Kamala Devi or uh, her rapist friend that she called racist herself, but now she looks up to him lovingly, that um, I am of below average political intelligence or political ability and that I and I have a lack of skills necessary for day-to-day -day political engagement? Let me know in the comments. <clears throat> uh, he continues, these black men have developed positive feelings towards the explicitly racist white supremacist administration of the current president. Keep in mind, Joe Biden's racist as shit. Kamala Devi called him that herself. And he's also, again, so he's lumping us all in with niggas that went Republican on social media for the grift. And which I'm sure he's aware of, but he doesn't give a fuck. Or maybe he's unaware of. These niggas do stay tight in their echo chambers, right? Like, don't they like to put B-L-O-C-K-T mm -hmm. blocked, right? Because they hate... I don't think he would put the T on it. He's too respectable for that. Hmm. Maybe on Twitter? No, Not he's even too respectable there. for that. Wait till you see a picture of this coon. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm scrolling his Facebook timeline right now. Oh, fun yeah. stuff. Um, 98% of it is sports related stuff, but his posts about racism are interesting because they're just so pro democratic. Like one of the posts he has is about, it's like a clipping from a newspaper in the sixties about two Negroes who were shot for uh, refusing to give up their voting rights and encouraging other black people to vote. And he shared it, but like with the uh, the hashtag because of them we can. So instead of being like, look at how white supremacy is fucking up black people, it's like, look how strong our ancestors were by voting, leading into that whole if you don't vote, you're disrespecting your ancestors bullshit. Oh yeah, they were so strong that the bullets still killed them. Oh yeah, that's powerful. Quick twitch muscle. All right. Um, where does he continue from? Okay, to, towards the current president. They exhibit a per persistent refusal to cooperate with progressive forces. So now the liberals are progressive. And other social movements, unless they are led by racist white supremacists, tied to or endorsed by the... Remember, Kamala Devi called Biden racist to his face. And now is glad to be his number two. Uh, continuing, despite overwhelming evidence to, to the contrary, politically disabled black men believe in the humanity of the current administration because they do not, uh, keep in mind, I'm one of these black men he's talking about. Do I, do I have a lot of pro-Trump segments? Uh, let me know in the comments. Tell me something. Show me, Bama. And no one in the... <laughs> Oh, there's uh, Jan Loco, punk, fellow punk-ass book jockey on the Facebook, said uh, you are excelling at the politics. Definitely the politics on the Facebook. I need to get that clip of, uh, of Bernie saying, there's one about me talking about it on, on the YouTube. <laughs> From the 80s. And just a look, because I, I really... This is not the most standout one from the 20 pieces I read this morning, 
but this what Thomas Frank was talking about reminded me of this. So last paragraph I'll do and we'll get back to the Frankster. Um, <clears throat> so they believe in the humanity of the current administration because they do not perceive the current president as a threat when black people hold the same values as the administration. It should be noted that the politically disabled black can... Now, now it's just the black. This is a black person that wrote this, I'll remind folks. The politically disabled black can and do learn political skills, but they learn them much more slowly than non-disabled black men. Oh, good. Great. Like, this nigga's damn near, like, about to get into some fucking, like, phernology <laughs> eugenics type shit. What a fetus leader I'm saw just something. Glancing. Oh, I'm just glancing. Oh, yeah, and more pictures yeah. he included were Kanye West with yeah. Trump, which, I mean, ableist as fuck, Mr. Sir. All right, continue on. Wow, okay. So now he's arguing that um, these politically disabled black men are basically coddled by their families, making them unfit to learn anything. Remember, anyone... That, I didn't make... He, that's his fucking... Yeah, his verbatim, right? Yeah. Yeah, will go out of their way to help him to the extent of overprotecting him. This, on the contrary, makes politically disabled black men completely unfit to learn or achieve anything. What the fuck? And literally has a rich man that is part of a community that has a private fire department as far as the unachieve. And then has Herman Cain. And, like, I didn't like Herman Cain. I didn't think he was really a down brother. But he's from the Jim Crow South. <laughs> right mm -hmm. and came up the way he did oh this is not a good argument so he's basically arguing that this is about trump supporters but he makes no um commentary about black people who don't like kamala 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 however the fuck yeah, you say it's it kamala uh who don't like her but are critiquing her from the left i also point out that he says if you don't think trump is racist just look at the pictures of his family uh kkk rallies Hey, you know who else was at KKK rallies in the 1920s? Uh, Bernie Sanders. Democrats, because they hadn't switched parties yet. Remember they did the party switch in the 60s with the yeah. whole civil rights thing? Yeah. So that's really not a good argument there. Yeah. Folks, you know why I don't have a lot of posts about sports? You know why I don't talk about the over-under in the football game do they have an over under mm, no I they don't, don't have an over under in I don't football fucking, i don't fucking know maybe they have it in ice hockey but you see why i don't oh talk about that it's not my lane oh what's if up? after all these interventions the politi <clears throat> politically disabled black man still remains in support of trump or his political minion kanye and his steadfast opposition of the biden harris ticket those Wait, are excuse me ma'am I, I don't want to interrupt you but you stopped at kanye Notice the misogyny. Oh, yeah. Kardashian yeah, and not Kanye him, West. Yeah. Yes. And then you continue. Um, and, stead and steadfast in his opposition to the Biden-Harris ticket. Not every black person who's opposed to Biden-Harris supports Trump. We're not all the same people. Oh, my God. Um, the friends and family members must look the man squarely in his eyes and forcefully say, fuck you, you coon-ass motherfucker, and walk away. Never to engage him politically again. So am I a coon now because I don't like Kamala and Biden? I don't know. I have questions. I mean, am, am I? Apparently. I mean, you've seen me behave in public. Yes, I have. Yeah. Am I cooning it up that hardcore? Uh, you offend a lot of white people when we go out in public. 
literally with just the word no, the word no, and we're talking specifically um, uh, assumed cis white men, the word no is not what they're trying to hear at any point in time. <laughs> All right, I'm bringing up an image of uh, <laughs> this cat on the screen because I'm tacky and I like to make fun he of the way He looks exactly look. what I would expect. Yeah. Yeah, but he's the one calling somebody a coon ass motherfucker, which I, oof, I triple dog dare you to say that right up in my grill. You're gonna get that in 1997. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, so take a look. Just checking the uh, blog talk phone line. Nothing popping and cracking there. And Jan Loco said, over under is betting, I think. Yes. Okay. See why I don't talk about the over-under? Yes. And why I don't talk about who's the best field goal kicker? Yes. Or I don't make predictions on if the, um, if the, uh, I don't know, the Minnesota Jets are going to take it all the way this year? I'm pretty sure the Jets aren't in Minnesota. Yeah, well, I bet when they play there, they are. Uh, (laughs) I don't talk about sports, and this nigga shouldn't talk about politics at the fuck all. And why is that cat playing with that plant like that? All right. Uh, I just looked at the... All right. Co- podcast listeners, you're, you're missing out on some fun stuff. Uh, this was a broadcast from my William J. Jackson. I'll link it on the Patreon so you folks can find it there easily. And let's get back to uh, Thomas motherfucking Fridnank on this uh, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. I'm pretty sure we burned a lot of our book club time with me running my fucking mouth. Um, yeah, so anyways, about this last segment of the book, something you said towards the beginning of the segment that I was going to bring up because I didn't know we were doing (laughs) that article was um, he was basically describing trickle-down economics um, when he was talking about um, this young politician who uh, was running uh, as a Democrat, I think he said as a Democrat, and uh, was, you know, on these populist ideas, was arguing that instead of uh, rich people uh, trying to push things down, if we give more to the people on the bottom, everything will go up, which is essentially, um, you know, what is termed Reaganomics or trickle-down economics, right? If rich people have more, they're going to share more, which never works because they just fucking hoard it. That's what they do. But it's just super interesting to me. And I know I keep saying it as we're going along this book, how much of this shit is like um, nothing has changed philosophically. It's the same exact arguments, just repackaged with different language, right? They're talking, they're still talking about trickled on economics. They're still uh, tying populism to fascism and now anarchism. I was waiting to see if that was going to come the same things in this. They're saying in 1890 about um, anarchists is the same shit. They're saying like literally right now about Antifa. Like you can find someone on Twitter saying the same exact shit about Antifa, you know? So yeah. Hmm. Well, that's neat. Yes. (laughs) All right, let's fucking do it. All right, a little bit more of the Thomas Frank, the people know. And I think we'll make this the last segment because we are, we're rolling over our hour, but then we'll also, in a day after tomorrow, we'll be rolling over state lines. Was the horror (laughs) of democracy. Yeah, I'll give it a 30 second head start. We can listen to a little bit of Thomas Frank rapping again. Plutocrats backs, sock it to him with the income tax. (laughs) <laughs> of gold bug law, we make a sport. When the time comes, we'll pack the court. On with the program without a hitch. Skin the east and skin the rich. Lift the heart and lift the fist. Swear to be an anarchist. Our creed is ruin. Our flag is red. On, brother anarchists, and raise Ned. This was the horror 
of Democracy, live and in your face. A lead editorial that ran in The Sun a few days thereafter declared that there really was no Democratic candidate that year. Instead, quote, there are populist anarchist candidates nominated on a populistic anarchist platform. Similarly, in a pamphlet distributed by the Republican Party that fall, the novelist and statesman John Hay claimed that the Democrats no longer really existed. The enemy which confronts us is the populist party, which had swallowed the Democrats as a python might swallow an ox. Thanks to William Jennings Bryan and, quote, his new red circus, unquote, something miraculous had happened, the Sun proclaimed. The business interests of the country are all arrayed on one side. The prospect of elite unanimity impressed many. E.L. Godkin, then the conscience of American journalism, clucked in The Nation that no man has ever yet been elected president whom the business interests of the country distrusted and opposed as unsafe. These interests in the controlling states are substantially unanimous against Bryan. Godkin was pleased even more by the harmony with which the nation's press came together against the Democratic challenger. It wasn't just business interests and respectable journalism that spoke as one. Every species of orthodoxy joined hands that year. Eminent clergymen stood tall against the threat, joining the Methodist bishop who declared from the pulpit that populists were no better than anarchists. A society preacher in New York denounced populist orators as the enemies of mankind. Another is said to have called Brian a mouthing, slobbering demagogue whose patriotism was all in his jawbone. Scholarly elites hastened to join the consensus. Of 15 university presidents polled by the nation, not one supported Brian. Yale sociologist William Graham Sumner, possibly the most famous intellectual in America, bitterly assailed the free silver movement in a series of articles for Leslie's Weekly. Cornell historian Andrew Dixon White, a founder of that university, intervened with a pamphlet claiming that, quote, for the first time in the history of the United States, we have an anarchist and socialist platform adopted by one of the two main parties. Brian himself was heckled by a crowd of Yale students as he spoke in New Haven, not because of his views on offensive Halloween costumes, but because of his insolence toward the rich. As his speech was interrupted again and again, Brian lashed out, saying, I have been so used to talking to young men who earn their own living that I hardly know what language to use to address myself to those who desire to be known not as creators of wealth, but as the distributors of wealth which somebody else created. It did not go over well. Of course, the Democratic Party was not really made up of anarchists nor had it been captured by the populists. Still, its shift to the left was real enough, with huge potential consequences for the country's financiers and investors. Their fear was a tangible thing. Republican leaders pulled out all the stops. Their candidate, the famed protectionist William McKinley, waged an avuncular front porch campaign from his home in Ohio. But behind the scenes, McKinley's friend Mark Hanna, the Cleveland tycoon, 
organized a bare-knuckle offensive in the great showdown between the classes. If Bryan represented the producing masses of the country, as the Democrat claimed, Hanna would counter his appeal with Trump-like promises of prosperity through tariffs. He would enlist American business and the whole votes-for-hire political system of the 19th century to suppress the eloquent challenger. In this war, Hanna was, quote, a political generalissimo of genius, the historian Matthew Josephson has written, risen suddenly from the councils of the leading capitalists to meet and checkmate the drive of the masses by summoning up the berserk fighting power latent in his class. The dynamic Hanna set about raising and spending enormous sums for the GOP effort, even going door to door to the headquarters of the great American corporations soliciting funds to put down the Nebraska upstart. There were few campaign finance rules back then, and what Hanna levied was what Josephson calls a political assessment, which is to say a private Republican tax upon corporate wealth. Armed with an unprecedented treasury, Hanna proceeded to crush Bryan under a mountain of money. He summoned up a blizzard of alarmist anti-populist pamphlets, 120 million of them, according to Josephson, distributed wherever Bryan's message seemed to have traction. A squad of paid Republican orators followed Bryan as he moved around the country. There were parades, mind-numbingly long and noisy and expensive. Every shady election day practice of the era was deployed. Every last possible hireling was provided with generous outlays. Toward the end of the contest, business rolled out its ultimate weapon, coercion, allegedly threatening to shut down factories or cancel deals if Brian won. Matthew Josephson's summary is chilly, but exact. Moral enthusiasm was to be beaten at every point in the line by a machine-like domination of the actual polling. And so it was. What the Republican campaign defended was a culture of hierarchy and domination. Some men must rule. The great mass of men must be ruled, Mark Hanna once said. And by and large, America's elite agreed with him. People who thought like Hannah did taught at American colleges, preached from American pulpits, wrote for highbrow American magazines, and funded American politicians. From the heights of this unanimity, the men of quality denounced the rabble. Bryan's campaign aroused, quote, the basest passions of the least worthy members of the community announced an editorial in the New York Tribune that ran on the day after the election. Quote, It has been defeated and destroyed because right is right and God is God. Populism was the world turned upside down. It came from a dark place where society's guardrails were gone, where wealth and learning and status counted for nothing. Populism was a word used to express the horror of seeing hierarchies collapse and the lowly clamber to places where they do not belong. Anti-populism's Magna Carta was The Platform of Anarchy, a pamphlet by the statesman John Hay 
that was distributed around the country as part of the Republican propaganda effort in the fall of 1896. Hayes' indignation was monumental. Populists, he wrote, valued nothing, throwing, quote, their frantic challenge against every feature of our civilization. They longed to bind the hands of government where it is inclined, quote, to protect order and property. They appealed, quote, to the openly lawless. They waged a, quote, shameful insurrection against law and national honesty. Their plans for funding the government were, quote, the merest babble of the loafers around a rural livery stable. For the plumed knights of the Republican Party, quote, it is as if a champion at attorney awaiting the onset of a chivalrous antagonist should suddenly find himself attacked by a lunatic in rags. The future president, Theodore Roosevelt, echoed this view in Review of Reviews, where he descended into straightforward prole bashing, performed in the key of aristocracy offended. That a man should change his clothes in the evening, that he should dine at any other hour than noon, impressed the populists as being symptoms of depravity instead of merely trivial. A taste for learning and cultivated friends and a tendency to bathe frequently caused them the deepest suspicion. A well-to-do man they regard with jealous distrust, and if they cannot be well-to-do themselves, at least they hope to make matters uncomfortable for those that are. And so the respectable faced off against the contemptible. Quality and good taste were menaced by the riffraff for no reason greater than the supposed resentment of lower animals for higher ones. I use the word animals deliberately. In 1894, Rudyard Kipling, then a resident of Vermont, published an allegorical story in which a group of horses on an East Coast farm trade stories about the hard work they have done for their human masters. In a weird foreshadowing of Orwell's Animal Farm, a radical horse from Kansas shows up in their pasture and neighs about degrading servitude and inalienable rights and the need to rise up against, quote, man the oppressor. Readers at the time would have recognized his views as a parody of populism. They're meant to sound ridiculous. The horse talks big, but in truth, he is merely lazy. I say we are the same flesh and blood, the creature whinnies, insisting on equine equality, regardless of how little work he does. The other horses are disgusted by his rebellion against their human masters, and even more so by his democratic patter, which they correctly understand to be an excuse for shirking the life of labor that is every farm animal's lot in this world. The radical, Kipling teaches, is an animal who does not know his place in the hierarchy. The other horses gang up and give him a terrible kicking. The visual theme cartoonists favored as they went about illustrating populism's upstart challenge was the eternal war of police and the poor. In an 1896 cartoon from Puck, another elegant humor magazine, William Jennings Bryan and his Legion of Disorder can be seen waving their red flag and marching down a city street behind three wild-eyed figures labeled Riot, Repudiation, and Populism. The street is lined with stately banks and insurance companies and 
thank goodness, two lines of police representing the sound money vote are closing in to defend these honorable institutions from the noisy mob. Cops versus Pops was a recurring fantasy of those feverish days. Another Puck cartoon from the same period showed the Republican candidate, William McKinley, depicted as a prosperous gentleman with a noble lady on his arm, making his way through the slums of papocracy. All around the glamorous couple lurk dark and shabby figures representing democratic and populist leaders. But fear not. Two beefy policemen are escorting the wealthy couple through this veil of proletarian menace. That cops exist in order to protect respectability from the dissolute was taken for granted by the editors of Puck. The humor, if you can call it that, was the way these cartoons fit political insurgency into the same template. A challenge to financial orthodoxy was equivalent to slum lawlessness. Populists were essentially lower-class criminals who obviously needed to be policed. The identification of populism with demagoguery a core doctrine of modern-day punditry, is descended directly from this original democracy scare. To prosperous Americans of the Gilded Age, it was inconceivable that intelligent human beings would wish to crack down on banks or ditch the gold standard. Populist grievances were irrational by definition. Indeed, as the renowned sociologist William Graham Sumner explained to readers of Leslie's Weekly in 1896, there really was no such thing as hard times. Yes, people's lives were being ruined, but stuff like that happened all the time. Stuff like that was unremarkable. What deserved the reader's outrage and contempt, Sumner insisted, was when some wily orator showed up and told the losers that this is somebody's fault. Somebody other than themselves, that is. As we have seen, William Jennings Bryan won the Democratic nomination by virtue of his extraordinary skills as an orator. He campaigned by traveling the country and speaking to live audiences, which was something of an innovation in American politics. To his foes, what these things indicated was not that Bryan was a capable leader, but that he was a demagogue, a man who made his way in the world by means of empty talk. By extension, the whole troublesome populist insurgency was maybe just a matter of hypnotizing rhetoric. It all began on the very day of Bryan's surprise nomination. An editorial in the New York Evening Post declared the Nebraskan to be the Democrats' chief demagogue, a man, quote, who took the mob of repudiators off their feet by a speech of 40 blatherskite power. It wasn't so much Brian's arguments that won the Democrats over, the editors continued, as it was his wind power, which is immense. Another Evening Post editorial got all technical about the matter, attributing Brian's victory to the enormous size of the building in which the Democratic convention was held, which permitted, quote, a shouting, shrieking mob to influence the proceedings. How has modern science overlooked this direct statistical relationship between architecture and mob psychology? It's clearly the mathematical answer to the mystery of populism. A favorite image of the anti-populists of the 1890s was the masquerade, the trick, the puppet show. Brian and his followers were not real Democrats, everyone agreed. 
They were, quote, masquerading in the democratic garb, as Professor White of Cornell put it. Weird place to stop, but we do have to stop. There we are. There's my audio. Weird place to stop, but we do have to stop. Um, the Which kind of stopped at the, um, but Bernie's not a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, registered as a Democrat running, but not a Democrat. He always caucuses with the Democrats in the uh, House, and then when he went to the Senate, not a Democrat. And also stood out to me, the horses gave the populist horse a kicking. Yeah. So they didn't just say, yo, fuck you, but they made sure to beat that ass, too. Mm-hmm. Which, on some level, I mean, you step it up, you go from beating ass to, hey, everyone has a gun to being a 17-year-old bootlicker, which is what those horses were, and going out there and being like, you need to be shot for stepping out of your place. Stepping out of fucking line. What uh, stood out to you? Oh, there was a lot of things in there (laughs) that stood out to me. Um, Going back to the whole workhorse thing, because, I mean, that's what they were, workhorses, right? That's why they most likely picked horses out of all the farm animals because of the term workhorse. And, you know, he made a reference that it was like a prefacing um, animal farm. And, of course, remember, an animal farm, the horse, when he could no longer produce, instead of getting a retirement package, they sent him to a glue factory to be murdered and, like, boiled down into glue because, you know, we'll find usefulness for you even in death. Um... You know, again, about the, yeah, Bernie isn't a real Democrat. A lot of the language that they're using is the same language, again, that we're seeing now that, like, oh, they just want lawlessness. They just want to blame other people. Uh, when, like, you know, leftists, populists talk about things like um, UBI, right, universal basic income, or we talk about uh, living wages, or we talk about um, Medicare for all, uh, free college. What You're just a bunch of freeloaders, right? Go work for yourself. That's the same exact thing they were saying then as they say now, you know, to hold on to the power and to hold on to the money. And so it's like, you know, these arguments have never changed. (laughs) And it's like people are still fucking falling for them and still repeating them. And it is really tied into all of it with that, like, you know, sort of um, sadism, love of authoritarianism and a Protestant work ethic where it's like this whole you have to bootstrap. And if you bootstrap well enough, you're going to get ahead, even though, like, statistically, you're not no matter how hard you work. But, you know, framing it like that, that you're just lazy, because the same way that they were saying back then about people of, oh, they're just freeloaders. What are they saying now? If you're a minimum wage worker who wants to strike for a better job, you should just have had a better job. You should just you should just get more education. Yeah, you're low skilled. Exactly. And so it's like, you know, these arguments have never fucking changed. Um. (laughs) Yeah, again, like it's like I'm low skilled. So I'm interested, like because like Imani Gandhi, right? A a fellow a fellow black person. Yes. Raised by a white person. Uh, Imani Gandhi, who who, uh, and and remember, Imani Gandhi didn't have student loan debt. Her right. parents could afford to literally pay her way through law fucking school. Yeah. Somewhere out there in a DC area. Okay. Right. And um, Imani Gandhi would see me as low skilled and deserving of my condition. Yeah. I'm interested in seeing how Imani Gandhi can maneuver a skyjack 
through a machine room. Well, right, and I think that's always part of the like the wage conversation or labor conversation is low skilled versus high skilled because they'll say that you know someone who could run the spreadsheets and do the numbers is high skilled, but that goes back to what I was saying in the last segment with it's different when you get to run um, the theories and the hypotheticals versus the person who has to live with the consequences of your policies. Yeah. Right. And so like it's very easy to say that oh because someone has uh, an advanced degree or they have the white collar job that they're you know better skilled, but I mean a perfect example is uh, what was that fucking show undercover boss right where it was like the premise was like the ceo or like a higher up in the company would pretend to be like an entry-level worker and they could never fucking do it i saw one where it was a uh, like a guy who uh i think he was like the ceo of subway couldn't fucking make a sandwich in the allotted amount of time uh one of them went undercover owned a hotel chain as a housekeeper couldn't clean a bedroom in the allotted amount of time because corporate had just said to the um housekeeping you need to shave off whatever it was like six minutes off your time and so like he couldn't get it done in the time and they were like this is what corporate said we got to do it right but having never been there he was like i didn't know it was this hard and uh one of them was like a like a fruit picker or a vegetable picker like you know out in the fields where you have to you know fucking 10 hours a day bend over picking shit and they were like you're not gonna make any money you're going too slow fucking i've seen it with uh, restaurant uh owners bartender like you know, when it comes to doing the thing that they are telling other people how to do, they can't fucking do it themselves. But it's fascinating that without those people doing it, you wouldn't have your job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like, uh, and again, like uh, a real world example directly from my work experience with what you're talking about. It, beyond just what the um, the CEO says, the really high-skilled person, right? So yeah. um, in our factory, there's a bunch of machine rooms, and this one is literally labeled room number one, and it's uh, we package a bunch of cereal in there. That's the main thing at Kellogg's and um, General Mills. And um, in that room, when we go to do large-scale preventative maintenance, mostly with, um, with sanitation in there, and we got to bring in the Skyjacks, we have to disassemble a whole ass platform. Imagine taking down a steel staircase, which we gotta go in with forklifts. And keep in mind, this cuts in on the time that we have to do it. They gotta bring in the maintenance department with forklifts, prop that thing up, bring those platforms out of the room, lay them down, and then we can bring the Skyjacks in. Then we finish, and then they gotta come and bolt that shit back in on a whole other shift. Yeah. And and there's a relatively new manager of the production department, only been there about like two years with the company and the production department. I think really like 18 months. He's not been there a long time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and towards the end of last year, that cat actually came out of the office and went in the room and looked at it and was like, how the, he didn't say how the fuck, but he was like, how are you guys doing this? <laughs> and I was like, oh, we have to take down that. He was like, how long does that take? I was like, oh, it probably shaves about 90 minutes off the front end of the day. And he was like, the engineers did a really bad job making this room. Yeah. Engineers, far more educated than I, mm -hmm. right? Far more skilled than I, even though, keep in mind, I showed up. At, I've never worked in a factory before. Yeah. Didn't even know how this shit happens walked into this job and um in less than one year was a machine operator less than a year after that was machine operator level one less than a year after that was on the safety committee machine operator level one 
and less than a year after that, I'm on the safety committee machine operator of multiple machines now, preventative maintenance, uh, sanitation department preventative maintenance, um, technician preventative maintenance, uh, technician maintenance. I've done technician maintenance. I've literally walked the floor with my tool cart that I'll show pictures of because it's fun. And um, But I'm low-skilled. Yes, because you don't have a degree. Because I don't have a degree. Yes. I have like 40-something great job cards. But you don't have a degree. I have a piece of paper that says machine operator. That's not a degree. It's laminated. <laughs> it's not a degree. It's real fancy. I gotta go back and find that fisherman story now. I have my forklift certification card. That's not a degree. Skyjack? No. Boom lift? No. Yeah, folks, I can drive a fucking boom lift. You ever see one? Um, you probably call it a cherry picker, depending on what region you're in. I'm qualified and have operated one of those before so that I, I'm not an electrician, so I could do preventative maintenance on electrical components. <laughs> I'm low skilled. Keep yes. them, I, all those words, I'm low skilled. And uh, Jan Loco, the, our, our fellow punk ass book jockey said, you have media empire skills. I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm giving it a shot. Yeah. Right again, like how how did I start the wine cellar, folks? You know what the fuck I used to actually do? I used to have um DVR cable, and when I thought that someone on MSNBC or Fox News or CNN said some bullshit, I would record it on the DVR box, and then I uh, I took um uh, fifty dollars that people donated to the program. This is 2013. Jan Loco was probably one of them folks <laughs> back then. And I bought um, cordless telephones, and I broadcast it through the telephone, and the second telephone I would put up to the speaker of the television so that I could play the clip for the show. I did that well into 2015 <laughs> before um, the Wine Cellar Media Fund helped us get um, better hardware that I could pull crispier audio digitally. Like, yeah, this is the shit we do, yo. This shit is... But you don't have a degree. <laughs> I don't have a degree. I, uh... I've, uh... I've got some pay stubs. <laughs> you don't have a degree. I think I still actually have the check stubs from when I was getting, like, um... I think, like, six fifteen an hour, some shit like that, in 2004. I still have, I still have a couple of those stubs. They're super low. All right, uh, WineCellarMedia.com. We went way the fuck over our time. And I'd be worried about that sometimes. So I know some folks don't have a lot of podcast listening time. They got to go and do something. They got to focus their attention on something else. So that's my bad if this is too long. Hopefully you have time to listen to it in segments yourself. We did riff a lot. I riffed a lot. Matter of fact, fuck that. I'm riffing some more. Um, okay. Before we go. Because another one of those things that I read kind of bugged me and now this is on BET.com thank goodness for the 1996 telecommunications act now this is a brother named Dustin Dustin Siebert S-E-I-B-E-R-T I, I don't Siebert, Cybert, I don't know the exacta mundo on that or the exacta mente, neither of those and uh this is, and you know, the editors tend to make the titles, and it's Opinion, 
five reasons why black men need to make up their minds and support Kamala Harris, which already like, how ridiculous does that sound off the top? Make up your mind and do what I'm telling you to do. Wouldn't make it up my mind be me deciding my, what I'm going to do, but fuck no. it. No. BET got sad since that fucking 1996 joint. Um, so Dustin goes in, and this is a short article with bold print, so it's fast. Um, After months of speculation, hand-wringing, and no small amount of annoyance, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has finally chosen a running mate for the 2020 presidential election in Sem- Senator Kamala Devi of California. It's a historic choice, as Kamala Devi is the first black woman, as well as the first South Asian woman, which I like how you can just be... All of a sudden, these niggas forgot the word biracial. Yes. And really, she's multiracial, because her father is damn near white. (laughs) Okay, but whatever, biracial. But you know what? Uh, Apparently, she's just two separate things at the same time, instead of that fuck it too blended ah. <clears throat> it's weird so uh, historic choice selected as the running mate and from either major party she's only the third woman ever since old man ever since old man joe seems content in dropping one gaffed after the other when someone can actually find him these days many believed he needed a woman on the ticket to balance him out uh, calls that it would be a black woman became loud uh, that he basically had no choice. Uh, Her- uh, uh, Kamala Devi was on the short list with the former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who I think would have been a way less um, publicly controversial choice. Like, that would have been his Tim Kaine. Yeah. He could have coasted through with Susan Rice. Because she's inconsequential for the most part like only the nerdiest of lefties are gonna have a lot to say about susan rice yeah that's gonna include me because i have a lot to say about the episode that she did with michael Steele. yes that michael Steele, former d former rnc chair michael Steele, on his podcast um all right and the other voting rights activist stacy abrams with their hilarious clip on the lawrence o'donnell show now here we go, buddy, buddy. Now, he does this whole thing, but he gets to five things that you gosh darn nigger black men need to be goddamn doing. <clears throat> and he get, and he leads into it with this paragraph. Everyone needs to understand one thing. that I'm going to use the B word here to quote him. There's no bitching or moaning about Harris as the potential vice president. You have no other choice. Cowboy the fuck up. Get over whatever problems you have and throw your support behind. Oh, that's how you make up your mind, you know, is you have no choice. That's, that is a good way to make up your mind is by not having other alternatives. Jesus Christ. All right. Yeah. Um, and, um, so whatever problems you have with the ticket, he says, I get it. She may not be your first pick for vice president and Lord knows Biden may be a hard swallow for many people as president. But here are just five reasons why black men in particular cannot stay home this November unless you plan to take advantage of mail-in ballot options and engage your civic duty 
to help prevent another round of sadistic dog and pony show residing at 16 Pennsylvania, 1600 Pennsylvania Ave. One, less criminalization, more opportunity from the cop and the racist, the crime bill racist that he wrote under the Bush administration because they're a uniparty. <clears throat> he, oh, you want to see what he says about it? No. You already read it five times. Phoenix not. reads fast. If you are willing to believe that people, including politicians, can change, expect... Oh. All right, but show me what they've done to change. Yeah, you know, like uh, Aaron Coleman. Um, expect Harris, uh, Kamala Devi, to have more of a vested interest in, do- in the domestic plight of black men, definitely more than you'd ever seen in the Trump administration, for starters. Oh, okay, so every argument is going to be, but it's not as bad as Trump. Okay, uh, okay. all right. And yeah, he mentions Floyd and Chauvin. Uh, number two, Trump, d- here we go, Trump doesn't and never did care about black people. Neither has Kamala Devi. Kamala Devi cares about Kamala Devi's career, Kamala Devi's white spouse, and Kamala Devi's white children. That's what Kamala Devi cares about. Earlier, Stepchildren. Oh, fuck. They're not even Kamala Devi's offspring? I don't believe so. Well, there you go. Damn. The fuck kind of man brings a cop around his kids? I mean... I don't like this guy. Mm-mm. <laughs> um, earlier this summer... Trump fixed his face to tell anyone who would listen that he's done more for black folks than any previous president. Yes, that was a hilarious clip. All right, so let's stick to his, uh, his, his main bold points. Number three, black people need a leader during this pandemic. For what? You know what? Let's see what the for what is. What black men can disprove that the what black man can disprove the fact that the Trump administration has mishandled the nation's response to COVID-19 pandemic. Again, so not as bad as Trump. However, I would like to point out, I keep consistently hearing that while this pandemic is going on, Democrats have consistently voted against um, rental relief. They voted against giving another um, uh, like uh, relief package out to people, like a stimulus package. They also remember um, when it was still primary voting, Biden told people to go out and vote, and as long as they social distance, they'd be safe. He and knowing that they intentionally crammed people in black neighborhoods because that's where the polling places are and now all the black people who live there got sick they took black nursing homes and black schools and places like that and made those into polling places and biden said that was safe and then no rental relief and no extra fucking um monetary relief that's not leadership so let's just you know but it's not as bad as trump so it doesn't matter also not as bad like and Trump doesn't handle shit. Trump handles twooping, all right? To whooping, which is when he's tweeting on the pooper. All right, that's what he handles. You know what handled the pandemic poorly? American capitalism. Because American capitalism don't want to stop. Greed mishandled it. You really think the one motherfucker is that ill? Which, and I guarantee you, as soon as I fucking like critique bear like if you get one of these people face to face in front of a crowd and they have to answer you 
and you critique Barry Hussein on some shit that he did with evidence to back it up because they will deny, deny, deny. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, hey, the president isn't that powerful. No, they'll be like, but Congress was against him. Really? But for, so for it's 2009 like, and 2010, Congress was against him? I mean, you know. But yeah, that is something that astounds me is, again, because people don't want to address systemic issues. So it's like Trump is the one. And then it's like, OK, but what about the system? Or Anthony Clark, we need to get him back on the show, made a tweet yesterday. He said, I have a hypothesis. Even if Biden wins, cops will still shoot unarmed black men in the streets. Yeah. Like one thing. Um, all right. Like, again, capitalism and systems. So I, I mentioned before that I'm on the safety committee at my gig. Well, I was. I'm going to a different factory, and I'm not getting on a committee ever a fucking again. I got my raises for that, and I'm keeping them. Fuck off. But the um, I was on the safety committee, and in the last few months of safety committee, or really the last few weeks, there's certain things that we're just not fixing anymore. And the reason why is because I got loud about it because I got tired of us wasting meeting time on this. Because... If to make something safer means the line has to run slower and you run the risk of not hitting your numbers, then it's not going to get fixed. And it's mostly not a, um, a mechanical problem. It's not a problem with a machine. It's the fact that the workers have to work so fast that it increases risk of injury. And you're not going to slow down the lines. So that injury is just always going to happen. So let's just only talk mechanical. That's it. If it's not like, like if there's something damaged and someone might cut their hand on it, fix the damaged thing. But you're not going to slow down the lines and you know it. All right. So, and that's the problem with America. America didn't want to slow down the lines and we know it. Right. I still, I think I still have my piece of paper that said you're an essential worker. And if the police pull you over, show them this piece of paper. Yep. Like, I basically got working papers, right? Like, if you're a slave and you live off-site from the plantation, and I'm talking like, um, you know, uh, um, chattel slave days. Yeah. Because I would, I would still use the word slave for wage workers now. But the, um, you know, you live off-site from location, you got to have some papers. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what the patty rollers are going to catch you up for. You might be a registered runaway. All right? So, uh, yeah, leadership. Number four, get ready. Are you ready? You'll never be ready for this. Number four is Harris may save your life. These niggas be on some bullshit. Here we go. Let's see his argument. We know that younger black men age 1 to 19 die from homicide more than any other means. You want to keep going from home going services to your homies that then stay at home on election day? Home-going services for your homies. You want to keep going home going. He has to use homies because it's BET, and that's the only way that you can talk to black men. You can't talk to black men any other way. What are home-going services? Uh, Probably because you're going home to heaven. The Lord calls you home. Oh, we're talking about funeral services? Yeah, that's that's how you have to talk to black people, though. And keep in mind, this is a black person on the post telecommunications BET. Um, then stay home on election day. So he's basically saying you're going to die if you don't vote for Harris. All right. But if you want to give our people a fighting chance, then consider what Harris has to offer. When she, what? I, what? All I've heard is not as bad as Trump. What the fuck is she actually offering? She's literally going to fix the past five centuries of everything. Damn, nigga. 
You light-skinned niggas hate fake black people, don't you? Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> I know, they, they do give light-skinned a bad name. A fucking bad name. All right. Like, I will take Rachel Dolas all over Kamala any day. Jesus Christ. I don't know about all that. Yeah. I, we don't have to take either one of them, really. Nah, yeah, no, you don't. No, no, we don't. That's the thing about being a person that says fuck it and just wants to socialize with the comrades. God, I need to make a gazillion dollars so I can build a socialize with the comrades land. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he continues. He says, so what she has to offer. When she was running for president, Harris said she wants to implement gun control measures that would force folks to go through background checks before being able to buy a gun and stricter regulations for making those guns. Um, so does that mean cops don't get guns anymore? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and I mean, also, I'm assuming that this is meant to appeal to the urban black male. Um, are most gun crimes in the hood committed with legally registered weapons? Well, let's take a look here. So, um, I've quoted this person, uh, BG Knockout, a rapper from the 90s, several times. Yes. And over the past few years, uh, BG Knockout has been doing interviews with Vlad TV. And BG Knockout is actually a rap. Keep in mind, BG Knockout was 19 years old. If you know Easy es Real Compton CDGs, he was 19 on that record. So he was probably about 20, 21 when he dropped this record where he said, um, the street, the three strikes start didn't help the situation. All it did was increase the jail population because niggas didn't like Clinton either. Rappers dissed the shit out of the Clinton administration. But let's check out this uh, clip from uh, from Vlad where they were on here. Now, were the Crips already established at that point? I it is now. So I don't think our parents back then, right. they didn't think if they didn't see it as a bit because they was all our. I'm skipping to find it because it's a six minute clip. Want to make sure I get the right thing. Think this is one thing I could tell you about. So I heard from an OG that they used to find barrels of guns along the train tracks. Yeah. Just sitting there. Ooze. Now, B, keep in mind, BG Knockout was 19 in 1993. So he heard from someone that he called an OG. Mm-hmm. So, and BG Knockout has gray hair in his beard now, right? So someone he called an OG said they would find guns left on the train tracks. Now, right? So, um, but I guess Kamala Harris is going to stop shit like that somehow. Like, yeah. guns were and, deliberately dropped off in the hood. Yeah, I've heard that about Chicago as well. And, of course, it was police dropping them off. Yeah. So, but, you know, that's fine. We're going to fix that. And then, of course, you know, and I would point out, too, with Chicago, because people love to fucking talk about Chicago, uh, one of the things they don't talk about is the reason that despite Illinois having relatively strict, strict gun laws, like, I can't get a gun in Illinois, um, despite having relatively strict gun laws compared to a lot of other states, part of the reason it's still so easy to get guns into Illinois is because we're bordered by Wisconsin and Indiana who do not have strict gun laws. We're like literally within two hours away of being able, well, actually about 90 minutes away from being able to cross a border to another state where it's hella easy to get a gun. And then all you have to do is come back across state lines with said gun if you're really feeling inclined to, you know, do some shit. And like, unless they're federal background checks, which I think states would fight, that fucking, that that type of gun control is not going to work. And it wouldn't. And also, there's a, a lot of arguing for a vice president. Yeah. <laughs> Nigga. Um, number five, Harris could let you puff in public or private without penalty. 
could let you, you say, not would, yeah, not as, will. As vice president, they could do that. Which is so funny to me because I was in another group where I was disagreeing about Kamal and they're like, it doesn't matter. Vice presidents don't make policy. Uh, well, they do now. Well. When, you, when you need to get at those lowly damn nigger boys that won't get in line and make up their minds and realize they have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> so the argument here is um, for those of you who are in states where your private or public puff puff pass activities are still considered illegal because again that's how you have to talk to black men you have to quote puff, black puff, movies or they also, won't get it but also biden says he's opposed to making it legal so if the how is the vice president going to overrule the president oh uh but because paper bag test okay that's how you do it <laughs> um and so here we go uh and understand this he says Harris has evolved on her marijuana policy over the years. She started out opposing a measure legalizing cannabis in California back in 2010. I mean, they already had medical and everyone was chiefing anyway. I mean, but that's still like, I don't even, I honestly don't even care. Like, like Kamala and a lot of other politicians are people I will literally never trust about marijuana policy because they all made their careers criminalizing it but then when they like oh yeah i used to smoke was it back in the day i'm jamaican of course i inhaled ha 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 she was making those fucking jokes when she was listening to tupac and biggie before their albums came out <laughs> bill clinton yeah obama yeah and it's like i don't trust any of them to do anything productive with it because they want it criminalized because they know they can get away with it and they want that gatekeeping like i don't actually believe any of them when they talk about like decriminalizing marijuana yeah fuck face value um, back in 2010, but she's changed her mind with the times and sponsored legislation to federally deschedule marijuana. And now descheduling is not decriminalizing. Okay. Well, all right. Nigga, but, but see, I, again, I need to write for BET. But see, then this goes back to the guy you were reading before. What the fuck did he say? Like, uh, I'm which part? The guy you read before the previous article. Yeah. About what did he call black men? Oh, politically disabled. Right, because he thinks you're too disabled, by which we know what word he really wants to use. It starts with an R. Oh, yeah. That you're too much of that to know the difference between legalizing, decriminalizing, and descheduling. See, he thinks you're too uh, disabled oh, to know I, the difference. I, I am. I actually didn't respond the way I did. I actually said, <laughs> huh, puff, puff, pass. Ooh, she light skin. I like that. that <laughs> I think as a black man, that's what I'm supposed to say. Yes. Uh, Harris evolved on it over the years, uh, but opposing measure, cannabis, da 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 da. Find out where I was. Uh, as a, she could be the one to sway Uncle Joe in the same direction and possibly convince him to take a more progressive, bolder step by going beyond just decriminalizing marijuana possession and expunging past convictions, which we all know heavily impacts black men in ways we don't even have to get into. In the words of Big Fridia, you already know. Frida. And that's really ratchet that they use that as a... Um, he's not my uncle. Well, to this black man, he is. And he seems like a black man with a white uncle. How fucking long is this podcast episode? My bad, folks. Two hours of your life that I think we kind of owe you a... a something for i don't know nigga uh we'll do a white on white crime tomorrow 
white on white crime. We'll make it. We'll make it extra funny. Try to find one of them action movie joints. Ninety seconds. Oh damn! Even Blog Talk <laughs> is done with our shit. Okay. All right, Blog Talk. I'm finished. Shit. <laughs> okay. Uh, Patreon.com/slash/WineSellerMediaFund. There's PayPal.me/slash/PhoenixAndWilliam. The Venmo is at WineSellerMedia, and the Cash App is dollar sign Phoenix Collider. All right, yeah, Blog Talk Radio telling me 90 seconds. Get done with the show, NECA. All right, please be as safe as possible wherever you are, and we will be as... 60 seconds. Yes, thank you, Blog Talk Radio. We will be as safe as possible as we cross state lines to move into this townhouse, and I set up a bigger recording office and studio to uh, really kick some ass. And there's a bathroom in it, too, so I can really lock myself down into work for days. All right. Thank you.